Welcome back, Warriors. Tunse Sego Anibuju. Kwe Nin Deluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Today is the podcast episode that you have all been waiting for, part two of my super extended conversation with the Honorable Graydon Nicholas, who left us in suspense last week. He was just about to tell us his adventures in Geneva. But before we get started with part two, I just wanted to remind everyone that there are lots of ways that you can help support this podcast. You can like and comment on each episode, as well as leave positive ratings on the podcast apps that allow you to rate or provide reviews. This type of listener engagement encourages those podcast apps to promote my podcast to more listeners. It also helps when you share these podcasts far and wide, posting them on social media, and especially when educators use them in their classrooms. This helps us spread Indigenous voices and education about Indigenous issues much further. This podcast is also commercial-free and entirely supported by listeners on Patreon. I'll leave a link below for my Patreon account for those who are interested. Now, without further delay, part two of my extended conversation with the Honorable Graydon Nicholas. Don't forget, he's from Tobik First Nation, and he was the first Native person to ever earn a law degree in New Brunswick the first Native person to be appointed to the provincial court in New Brunswick as a judge, and also the first Native person to be appointed as lieutenant governor in New Brunswick. And that's in addition to spending decades working with First Nations and grassroots people on issues that are important to us. And today he serves as the Chancellor of St. Thomas University, the same university where I got my Native Studies degree. Here we go with part two. Uh, I... I'm not sure if I would have shared with you my experience in Geneva uh, on the early stages of the uh, United Declarations on Rights of Indigenous People that we have now. But in 1983, like we were as an organization and, and throughout this country struggling on the, the recognition of treaty and Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal title. Uh, you, you know, we, we had we had some cases that were good. Uh, but uh, the the thing was the, that was the time when they're talking about patriation and all this stuff. And for myself as a political leader at the time, I said we can't trust the government. You know, they're going to pick and choose. First of all, our treaties were made between nations. Mm -hmm. In other mm -hmm. words, we're we're nations, and uh, the crown was represented to a nation. And uh, so under under I never studied international law, but because I had gone to Geneva, started to go to Geneva and reading this stuff. The criteria for a nation is, number one, is you have to have a population. Secondly, is you have to have a form of government, you have to have a language, and you have to have a territory and be able to uh, interact with others. So the definition of a nation, the Willistic Wigan Nation, the Mi'kmaq Nation, the Cree Nation, the Anishinaabe Nation, Haudenosaunee, all across this land, uh, we were nations. And uh, so, and I had read the decisions of the United States Supreme Court in the 1830s, the 1820s, 1830s, when Chief Justice Marshall was dealing with these treaties that the United States inherited uh, from the British. 
And they themselves signed treaties with the different tribes, Cherokee Nation, there's Creek and other nations as well. So when these were being contested because of conflict between state governments and the federal government of the United States, they had to litigate this stuff. Even though I don't think we had any, no, I don't think there was any uh, Native American uh, lawyers back then or anything like that. But the courts at that time said the words sovereignty, the words nationhood, the words nation, those are our terms in the, in, in the English language. That's not necessarily the language that the tribes would have. However, we had to treat them as nations by signing treaties. So we have to recognize their uh, sovereignty, their nationhood, and their jurisdiction. And so I was, uh, you know, I said, wow, this, this is amazing. I, I'd never, I had never uh, read that kind of law, although I had a little bit of it when I, 1969, but not fully. And uh, so I started to, uh, when we would gather, you know, Pam, back in the, I'd say mid-70s, say about 70, 76 to 78, 79, across Canada, there were no more than about 10 of us Indigenous who were lawyers. You know, think of Leroy Little Bear, Wilton Little Child, and, uh, the, and, and I'm trying to think of the guy's name. His, name was, his last name is Young. Uh, from uh, from Manitoba. Oh, Ken oh. Young. Ken Young, young Ken Young, and uh, and also like Joe Muscoop, Joe uh, Matthias from, uh, and Bill Wilson. Those guys have gone to law school, not really practicing law, but they were involved in the political movement. Mm -hmm. So uh, we would, uh, so we would meet the the at that at the time the National League Brotherhood. The president was Noel Star Blanket, and my brother Dennis was the vice president. So they would gather us young Indigenous legal minds and. And we would meet with our uh, counterparts from the United States, from the Native Americans, because there were quite a few Native American lawyers actually in the United States. And so we began to discuss all these concepts of sovereignty, nationhood, jurisdiction, self-determination, uh, judicial systems. And wow, this was a real major uh, experience for me. I said, holy God, that is something. So, so once I learned from them and I said, well, we're no different. Maybe it's not practiced in our particular uh, community, but I know for sure there are trees because uh, we've been going to courts with this stuff. So that opened up a whole new thing for me. And uh, so in 19, uh, uh, I think just to give a little bit of background. See, uh, the case that kind of was like a shadow overall treaty and indigenous rights in the Maritimes was this Syllaboy case, which was decided by a deputy uh, provincial judge, uh, magistrate actually back in Cape Breton in 1928. In essence, the treaty of 1752, he said, was not valid. It, and when it was signed in 1752, Cape Breton was still part of Acadia and not part of Nova Scotia. So it doesn't apply there. And the one who was accused was actually the grand chief of the Mi'kmaq. <laughs> so, Silva himself was a grand chief of the Mi'kmaq, and, and, and he was just exercising his right to, to hunt, fish, and trap, and he was found guilty. And, and so the sort of barriers from that very beginning, unfortunately, was number one, the treaty was not valid, because they said there were outbreaks of hostilities in Halifax, and there were supposed to be peace and friendship treaties. The second thing is he said, there's no way that Mr. Silboy can trace himself back to that document, even if it's valid, in order to be beneficiary. So that continued to affect 
uh, all the Atlantic with respect to the, we have a number of treaties that we signed, peace and friendship treaties. You know, first of all, being 1725, and strangely enough, that treaty was signed in Boston <laughs> and, and then brought up to Halifax for sort of like ratification later on, 1726. But, but representatives from, from our tribe were there. And, and so we had the same problem here in New Brunswick about the hunting, fishing, and trapping rights, the genealogy part. So we were able to find the documents, and these treaty documents were spread out in Nova Scotia, Halifax, Ottawa, all over the place. It's a darn good thing we had a good, strong research and department that went to found these documents. And then you got you look at the original ones, see what they look like, and and uh, and then, but yeah, the genealogy we always had a problem, and it just so happened. You know, it's like I say, sometimes you know the creator looks after us real good. And uh, we had a, a woman by the name of Marjorie Pearlie. She was from our community and she was interested in research and had uh, received a Ford Foundation Fellowship way back in the 70s. Ford Foundation in the United States decided that they would donate so much money to, to Native Americans, which would include First Nations in our country. So she got a grant from them to do some work. So she was interested in wampum belts and whether wampum belts were used here in this area or not. And so she happened to go to uh, East Clear First Nation, which is called Village now, Village. And she was talking to the priest there and the priest said, well, look, you know, I'll, I don't know anything about wampum belts, but here you can have a copy of this. And the copy uh, was birth records, baptismal records, death certificates, marriage licenses and everything. Uh, from uh, 1700, and I forget the date, 1763 or something like that. So she brought it to our, uh, brought it to our, well, neither, none of us could really read French. And we said, well, geez, how would we do it? What would we do here with this document? Uh, so we, Dune uh, Hockwood, who was Mi'kmaq from Dorchester, from Fort Folly First Nation, said, I know a guy, Stephen White. He's at the Acadian Archives at the University of Moncton. And I'll take this to him and see if he can help us. Well, he went to see Steve White. And Steve was so uh, he's so grateful for seeing because they had never had that kind of a document just on the indigenous people and the church, even if it was in French, because the missionaries were all French back then. And the names were all in French at the time. So, so he said, this is a record we never knew existed as part of an Acadian uh system he said so joe said well here's our problem he's he said with this link and the other we have here i can in fact trace your people back to the 1600s and of course we know the first baptism was 1610 right grand chief member too and he said we've got all the records and what was kind of so he got to be our expert witness now steve white his family way way back in 1755 were displaced Acadians and sent down for like Louisiana or somewhere down there. And eventually they changed their name to white. Now LeBlanc is is white in English. So they changed their name from LeBlanc to white. And so he was brought up in the educational system in the United States, eventually found out his uh, Acadian identity and got hired by the Acadian archives and at the University of Moncton. 
and uh, you know, three hundred and some odd years later. <laughs> so, anyway, so so he he was really good. I mean, that's the expert witness we needed. Really, it was amazing. So then, uh, because the province of New Brunswick, uh, the attorney general did not recognize our rights at all, and Hatfield, who was a premier, he was just I don't know. Uh, I guess I have to be generous in my old age, what I say, <laughs> but it was a challenge for us because he had said in 1970 to the chiefs gathered in Edmonston, you know, this when he became premier, right? And defeated Louis Robichaud. And the chief, I think it was Anthony Francis, who at the time was, was the president of the union, I think, and other, other people who were there, they told the premier, premier, we've got treaty rights. That field, even though he was a lawyer, never heard of it. Treaty rights. So what do you mean treaties? He said, "Well, we've got treaties, and we're finding this stuff, and uh, they apply to this province." And, and Hatfield told the gather chiefs at the time, 1970, "If you can prove to me in a court of law in New Brunswick that there is a treaty, it's valid, I'll be the first one to stand up in New Brunswick and say, hey, we have to respect these things.'" So the challenge was issued. So when I came on to the Union of New Brunswick in this whole time in 1974, this was one of the things on my lap. And so we did a lot of research. And, and so finally, we had this case called the Gregory Paul case. Gregory Paul was from, uh, it, well, back then it was called uh, Red Bank, but now it's Metapanagiak. And Gregory Paul was Mi'kmaq from his community and he had trapped a beaver in springtime and was gonna go down to the fur dealer in um, Mermachi and sell it. So he put the pelt up, stretched out on his pickup truck and drove through the town. Stopped in for a cup of coffee and just happened to be where game wardens were <laughs> having coffee too. <laughs> so, so the game warden says, holy cow, what do you got there anyway? Gregory, he said, oh geez, I got a nice beaver pelt. Oh, this is, that was a good sized beaver. What are you going to do with that? I'm going to go sell to the fur dealer. Down, you know, then Douglas Town. They said, do you have a permit or license to issue to transport that? Gregory Paul says, I don't need one. The Union of New Brunswick Indians says we've got treaty rights, we've got the right to trap, and I'm going down there. I don't need anything from the province. So they charged him. They charged him for uh, transporting beaver pelt without a license under the Fish and Wildlife Act, I think, of New Brunswick, or Remus Act, whatever it was called at the time. So he came knocking on our door. <laughs> he said, Well, I need your help. This is what he told our crew, right? And he says, what is it? So we listened to him. And, and um, we said, yeah, we'll defend you. We'll defend you. We're waiting for a test case. And so sure enough, we went to court and, and, and we, we said, we're going, to, we're going to test the treaties. We're going to put all of them in there, you know, right from 1725 to 1779, which was the last one that the Mi'kmaq would have signed in. Windsor, Nova Scotia at the time, but it applied to that area of our province. <laughs> and and uh, I told Gregory, I said, Gregory, we're going to lose this at the trial and possibly back then the county court level and maybe even in the court of appeal. But I think this case may go all the way to Supreme Court Canada. So are you prepared to uh, wait that long? It might take seven years. He says, well, if you say I've got the right, okay. So we went on that basis of of uh, making an agreement with the prosecutor because we both wanted to know how valid these treaties are. So we agreed that Gregory Paul, in fact, did trap the beaver on his reserve, that he's a registered Indian under the Indian Act, and that there are these treaties that 
would come into play for a defense under the Federal Indian Act, Section 88 or 87 at the time, I think. So sure enough, we went to the trial level and guilty. Uh, you know, the provincial court just saying, well, Indians should be any different than anybody else. They're in the province of New Brunswick. And uh, so uh, I, but I told Gregory, I said, well, I told you we'd lose. We're going to go to the county court next. So I put the appeal in for a county court judge. And the county court judge was from Moncton. He came up, we had the hearing scheduled. And then he asked uh, the county prosecutor for myself to go into his office. So we went in there and he said, I don't want to hear this case. I said, what do you mean you want to hear this case? The, the next level of the judiciary is you, a county court judge. He said, yeah, but as a county court judge, I don't have to hear it. I want to refer this directly to the Court of Appeal because that's where one of you guys are going to take it anyway, isn't it? Well, it's just true. We, we lose. Just cause it, yeah, we lose. we're going to take it there too. He says, okay, I'm going to make a reference directly to the Court of Appeal. And so they did. And so uh, this was my first big moment to go in front of the Court of Appeal of New Brunswick, you know. And so uh, we put the appeal in and submitted, you know, your documentation, your arguments ahead of time. And uh, we got up to, uh, we got up to, uh, I had to go because the appellant, my factum was there and everything. But then they said, okay, Mr. Nicholas, what is it you have to say? So I got up, start to make my arguments. Chief Justice says, just a minute before you begin. He says, how do we know as judges of the Court of Appeal of New Brunswick that Mr. Paul, the one you represent, is in fact, can connect himself to the treaties that you are putting, that were here part of the evidence? His genealogy, right? I said, well, my lords, I said, this was an agreed statement of fact that uh, that the Crown Prosecutor and myself would agree to. Uh, we want to test the law to find out are these trees valid or not for recognition of hunting, fishing, and trapping rights. They said, well, there's nothing on the record here that's been sent up by the uh, provincial court, the North County Court judge. I said, well, gee, we're signing a great statement of facts, and it's a darn good thing the Crown Prosecutor said, I've got a copy of them right here. And so handed over to this and, and then this, okay, let's hear your argument then. So I made my argument. And uh, and then um, the Crown Prosecutor responded. And then what happens as an appellant at the end, do you have a chance to make a rebuttal? So I was looking at the clock and I saw one of the judges keep looking at the clock and all this stuff. And I said, oh, this is five to 12. I said, oh, I better not say too much because maybe he's hungry. Oh no, or whatever. So I said, well, uh, no, I just would say that uh, whatever my factum has, what, what I put in my arguments, uh, they're sufficient here for uh, for your lordships to decide the case one way or the other. <clears throat> and so we're recessed. That would have been in sort of like October, I think, of one year. And then I got a letter the following year. This strange letter, you know, the letter said, the court cannot make a decision. So this would have been in 70... I'd say it would have been in 79, fall of 79, and they needed more more information. Well, in, when that happens, you have to let the Crown know, and then you submit whatever documentation you need to the court so that uh, in terms of court system, you, you do that. So I submitted a whole bunch of stuff, made a copy to the Crown. 
So the decision was finally made in um, June of 1980, the Gregory Paul case, and he was acquitted. Uh, all three judges said not guilty. Uh, one, two of the judges, the chief justice and another judge said, because of the Treaty of 1779, uh, which did which recognize actually hunting, fishing, trapping rights within, within their district, that was the word used, Unfortunately, they interpreted district to say they are current current uh, Indian reserve, like Madapanaga. It didn't expand off the reserve. In the, and uh, I was disappointed with that, but my client was found not guilty. So then the other, um, the other judge uh, ruled that not guilty because of all the treaties that had been signed. So I, but they said his was actually, uh, uh, you know, not part of the major, major decision. It was sort of like a dissent. It really wasn't, but that's how they interpreted it. So again, not guilty. So, so Gregory says, we won. I said, well, we won. That's true. However, uh, when a decision is made this time of year in June, the province has 90 days to file a notice of appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we have to wait some more. So, um, and I was hoping, I, said, yeah, I hope this case goes straight for the Canada. You know, it's, uh, we've never had a case of this kind that's been held by the court, and, but the province decided not to appeal it. For whatever reason they had, I mean, they, they had the reasons, and you don't question that. My client was happy. All he wanted, he said, well, when, when can I get my beaver belt back? Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. We'll have to, so the chiefs were scheduled to meet with, uh, with Premier Hatfield, and uh, I told them, I said, well, we finally won a case, and the province not going to appeal it, so whatever Hatfield promised you in 1970, uh, they said, okay, so we went to a meeting with the Premier and I forget a couple of his cabinet members, maybe, in the Centennial Building, and I remember Chief Albert Levi saying, look at uh, Mr. Premier, in 1970, I was just a new chief and now it's also booked out by the time You challenged us that we should have a we should have a treaty we could prove in the court in New Brunswick and, and you would accept it. Hatfield's response, which is said that's only one Indian. It doesn't apply to everyone else. So obviously his whoever his minister of justice or attorney general must have figured, okay, uh so, oh, gee, you know, I mean, there was, people were mad and upset inside that chambers. And um, so I remember uh, Albert Levi saying, Chief Levi, he said, Mr. Premier, this is what you told us in Edmonton. And now you're saying, no. He says, the word's going to come out to our hunters tonight. Everyone start hunting. There'll be about a thousand of them. You don't have enough court space. You don't have enough judges, but we're going to defend each and every one of them. Goodbye. That meeting stopped. I mean, there was for about another reaches. That was it, you know? So, see, I know the Hatfield at the time, we never told them we had this expert testimony of Stephen White. Uh, that's before disclosure rules, but they never told us what they did as well. So, sure enough, we got another case, another cases. And this time, we had Stephen White testify as an expert with our treatise. 
and the the acquittals started, and it was on reserve and off reserve. So we were able to. That was, I think, probably, you know, when you stop and think, in 1980, uh, and then subsequent cases we had. Um, this is why our chiefs in New Brunswick did not trust Hatfield at the first minister's conferences. Why should he have anything to say about our identification of our treaty and Aboriginal rights when he back in the home province he couldn't care less. So we based on that our uh, uh, as the chiefs of New Brunswick and the Indian Association of Alberta and the uh, chiefs of Nova Scotia uh, uh, went to issue a court case in London that tried to stop the patriation process. Now, it was very unpopular for other political leader, indigenous political leaders in this country because they said, well, you know, we've got Section 35, which is that, okay, existing treaty and Aboriginal rights are hereby recognized. Um, but we didn't trust the language, and we certainly did not mm -hmm. trust premiers across this country to be telling us what our treaty and Aboriginal rights are. That's probably the same thing now, I don't know, but this is what yeah. it was yeah. kind of a... So because of that experience, this is why then... Um, the Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq, you know, was Donald Marshall Sr., and I knew him. You know, well, we all knew one another back then. It was because we met as Maritime Chiefs, Atlantic Chiefs, and Listigush came and be with us. And uh, so uh, uh, Donald Sr. said, Graydon, I want you to go to Geneva, Switzerland. I said, for what? He said, well, they're having meetings there about Indigenous peoples from around the world, so I want you to go there. So I was, I said, Don, I have great respect for you. However, and this was probably my mistake. I said, however, I work for the Chiefs of the Constitution. And um, we had a dinner break. After dinner, the Chiefs of New Brunswick said, Braden, we got to meet with you. I said, okay. So and he says, we don't like the way you talk to the Grand Chief Donald Marshall, he's a good man. I said, "Yeah, I know he's a good man." And he, so you, you're going to go to Geneva. I said, "You want me to go to Geneva <laughs> in the summer of 1983?" Right? <laughs> I said, uh, "What do you want me to say? What you've been telling us all along that we can't trust governments that are treaty rights?" And I said, "Yeah, okay." I said, uh, "See, because the reason why, because I was." As part of an organization, because I was president then, I had to be conscious of money. Mm -hmm. And we just did not have money to send great necklaces over to Geneva, Switzerland. And I thought to myself, well, if Nova Scotia wants me to go there, let them dip into their coffers to help me pay for my expenses. Uh, and But anyway, I was told to go and I said, okay, I'll go. I'll have to find out how to get there. And um, But Donald Marshall Sr. said, we want you to go there and tell us what's happening. We're hearing that somebody is representing us over there. I said, oh, I didn't know that. So, so to get to a United Nations meeting in Geneva, you have to have um, uh, you have to have an organization, you know, uh, NGO, what they call non-governmental organization, who's got uh, recognition by the United Nations to go and uh, speak there, because you can't just go there and speak. So to find an organization, uh, through my contacts with others, uh, the it was the um, uh, North American Indian Treaty Council from New York, based in New York, but I mean, you know, in the United States, 
And I approached him and I said, look, is there any way that I could come under your kind of sponsorship as an NGO to participate in this? So she says, okay, just send us to your particulars. We'll, we'll get you the credentials. So sure enough, I, I got to go to uh, Geneva this, in August, I think, maybe July or something. Like they used to call it Indian Summer in Geneva. It was just yeah. a wonderful yeah. session, bringing indigenous representatives from around the world and uh, making presentations. So I learned, well, you have to write stuff up in case you don't complete the stuff. You need your file it there, at least the material will be there. So once, uh, so I prepared documentation for our, like the Mi'kmaq and the Willistic Week uh, in the Maritimes. And PI agreed that I could do it. And uh, I'm not sure if Willistic was really gave me permission or not, because uh, the Mi'kmaq there, there were three. And, and But anyway, they said, okay, you'll go. And, and we all have the same treaties and all that stuff. So I prepared a submission. I went there. And um, at the time, there were probably, I'll say 70, 75 representatives, indigenous organizations from around the world who would gather there and just for one week. And so it was in its preliminary stages um, of uh, trying to deal with uh, standards that the uh, United Nations would try to develop. And then secondly was also what's, what's happening in the, in the different uh, jurisdictions, different states. So uh, I went there and made my submission. I had, no kidding, eight minutes is all you had to speak. That was it. And so the government of Canada representative came in and contradicted everything. They said, oh, we're helping, oh, we're good and all this stuff. But, and they had unlimited time. But that was each indigenous organization from around the world was like that. And uh, so they say, well, okay, they're indigenous populations. And uh, so, but from that, I got, you make linkages with others, you know, and uh, so not only for those in, uh, in our part of the world, the Americas, but also different ones from Australia and New Zealand and in, uh, at different places, Scandinavia country and all that stuff. So, so anyway, second year I went back. Again, it was just for... Um, just for a week, but I was better organized and I made sure I made copies when I went there so I could distribute them widely. And uh, then you, you start developing more connections. And then I spoke to, uh, I spoke to uh, some tribes from BC who had supported me and from Alberta and Manitoba. And uh, they started to go there. And then also some from Quebec and Ontario. And so networking began. And uh, so I think in 85, uh, of course, I ran a national chief, then I got trounced, so I didn't go that way. <laughs> but, uh, but in 87, I went back, and in 88, in 87, there was a two-week. And by then, there were 350 people who would come from, represent the voices from around the world. And so that was the genesis, actually, of the United Nations Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So this is where you hear the words about nationhood, sovereignty, self-determination, uh, land rights, every, the whole, what, what, what you see in the document now, those were all discussed at the very beginning. And of course you'd have countries objecting to indigenous voices. They didn't want to recognize us as peoples because they said, if they're peoples, then this thing about nations would creep in. They said, no, they're just populations, you know, minority populations in their country. So I got a chance to meet a whole bunch of people there. I learned a whole lot. And, uh, but I, I, I retired from the United Brunswick Indians in the fall of 88 and 
uh, I was just, uh, there was so much on my plate, I think. And then I said, well, I want to try something else. So that's, and when I read that document in 2007, I couldn't believe it. I said, wow, isn't that something? And uh, even now, uh, uh, there's going to be an attempt by fire by the government and C-15 try to put this into place, but I don't know how it'll do, maybe. But it's, Canada still um, does not want to recognize, first of all, land rights. It doesn't want to fully recognize, it tries to impose uh, uh, consultant, which is uh, a legal terminology that the Supreme Court have talked about, but it doesn't give the full consent that our nations have. So, um, but anyway, it's that's that's what it was, and uh, gosh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> You've been at it's so many important points in time. You know, at the National Indian Brotherhood, way back when, when you had all of these titans who were like leading the movement on all of these things. You know, at the constitutional talks and those issues, and to be there at the beginnings of what would eventually become UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and then to see all that work, like none of that work and and effort comes with an immediate result like yeah, you right. see it you plant the seeds you do the work and then other people do the work and they carry it forward and you hope that it'll be something someday and like and here it is now it's an international declaration that applies yeah. to the majority of the world's countries and whether or not Canada implements it domestically or how it does or you know whether it's this government or another government it's the fact that indigenous peoples got it to where yeah. it is that it's in fact an international document and and you were part of that like that's that's really amazing well the baby steps of it i should say <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's all important i mean and and like you're doing all of this stuff you know law and social work and grassroots and politics and then how on earth did you become a judge did you just walk into, you know, the chief justice of the, of the bench and he's like, oh, hey. <laughs> like well, you know, like <laughs> you know, that was quite a thing. I mean, I first of all, uh, I loved teaching at the University of St. Thomas. I, I really enjoyed it. It was relaxing, believe me, compared to the political uh, demands of, of Indigenous politicians. You know, it, the demands are so great among our people because the needs are so great. Yeah. And you're always in a very uh, combative stance with the government policies. Now it's complicated with provinces. Uh, but um, uh, so I found teaching to be very relaxing, but I had an opportunity then to teach students such as yourselves and others of what I had experienced, you know, like uh, the richness of our, uh, our self-determination, mm -hmm. our nationhood, our sovereignty, what, who were, and, you know, and some people sit in the last said, what is Aboriginal rights? You know, I said, well, Aboriginal rights for me is simple. It's a way of life. It's the way we lived before contact with the with the uh, colonizers. So that way of life is how we lived. We had all these, we had our own systems and everything. So I said, that's a nutshell is what it is. But we have to be creative and go back and be open to what it is. But so I was teaching this. And actually, I had applied for a grant uh, in 1990. From, uh, from the uh, organization that supports university uh, research. Uh, that Back then they called it SHRC. I'm not even sure what yeah. they call it now. But uh, so I applied for a grant, sort of like maybe, I don't know, say $17,000, maybe $20,000 at the most, whatever it was. 
lot of money back in 1990. So what I was going to do was because of what I had learned from the United States, other uh, indigenous Native American jurists over there, as well as uh, I was interested in examining their tribal court systems. Because um, in our province, I said, well, we've got the Mi'kmaq and the Willistic Week, and they're spread out. One by itself may not have enough uh, responsibility. So I said, let me go study the ones in the United States. So my grant was approved, and I was supposed to go up to Washington State, Montana State, the smaller ones, where they had what, uh, what they would call rotating and traveling tribal courts. In other words, because the reservations were small, the judge would go and uh, and I'd see what was happening in Norway House that time, you know. So, so I, I applied for the grant, got it, and uh, so, however, uh, and I had gone to different conferences, you know, on the Indigenous issues and uh, uh, dealing with uh, trying to get our people to develop their own justice systems, I guess. Uh, and so, then I got a. I got a visit from the Minister of Justice uh, in May 1st, 1991. Jim Lockyer was the guy. And I had met Jim at different conferences. You know, he was, he was on, with the McKenna government at the time. And so he walked in. He said, well, great. I've heard you talk at these conferences. Well, he says, uh, what would you do to improve the, uh, the uh, system in your runs? So, okay. So he, I said, okay, he wants somebody to go and give. <laughs> so I said, well, Jim, here's what I do. I said, first thing, the first point of contact of anyone who's charged is the police. If the police don't know anything about us, don't know our language, our customs, or tradition, they're going to make mistakes. Secondly, is once a person is going to be charged, you have to take it to a crown prosecutor. And if the car prosecutor doesn't know anything about her, and, and I knew from hunting fishing traffic cases, <laughs> a lot of them didn't know it. So I said, and then that's the next one. I said, then there's a legal aid, because that's the first one that contacts. And then you've got the judge, judiciary. And then if somebody's convicted, you know, within all just criminal, not just hunting fishing traffic cases. I said, well, you've got probation involved in their parole and all these. And I said, so... You're talking about major, major work here that's got to be done. I said, um, what else? What else? I said, well, look at look at yourself, Jim. I said, you're a minister of justice. I said, how much background do you have on indigenous issues? You've gone to many conferences. How much have you learned? Well, I've learned some. I said, okay, how about your cabinet colleagues? What have they learned? Because they make decisions. Well, not too much, but I said, how about, what, how about the premier? How much does premier Canada know about indigenous rights? So I said, so actually to make changes in the system, people have to know what they're up against. I said, because there have been a number of reports that have been done. I said, the first one was in 1967 called Indians of the Law, and there have been a series of them. I said, making recommendations, beautiful recommendations, but they haven't been implemented. So anyway, we're going like this, and I said, and I said so what do I, I said, well, Jim, what is it you're looking for? <laughs> he said, how would you like to be a provincial court judge? I said, what? What do you mean provincial court judge? I said, Jesus, I don't want to be a provincial court judge. I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy teaching. I love this. And he says, well, uh, you know, uh, I think the province would like to have an indigenous person as a provincial court judge. I said, well, wow. I said, well, I can't say yes. So when do you need to know? And uh, this May 1st was, I think, on a Wednesday. And I said, well, gee, I don't know. I'd have to call my wife because she's involved in this. If I change, 
because I'm here at the university and full time and uh, I'm going to start doing some research. And he said, well, okay, let me know. And so I had to call my wife and said, guess what? We're going to have to go get a bite to eat somewhere. I know I'm serious. She says, what is it? I said, I'll have to wait until after a week and then I'll tell you. <laughs> so anyway, I told her what he was about. He said, oh, where? I said, well, they're going to send me up to Woodstock. They're going to send me up to Woodstock for a couple of years, get to know the system, and then possibly sit at different areas where First Nations would be tried. It's almost like a tribal court system, right? <laughs> tribal, tribal justice, tribal in court kind of a thing. And he said, what do you think? I said, Jesus, I don't know. I said, look, I love what I'm doing. I'm not sure whether I'm ready for this or not. And he says, well, I think you are. You're not as uh, combative as you were <laughs> back in the 80s. <laughs> You've mellowed a little bit, you know. And uh, I, so anyway, so so I agreed. I agreed it would be done. And that, that's how it happened, you know. Like, uh, wow. And then I um, I got a little bit disappointed. About 94, there was no movement. And by then, you're changing ministers and all this stuff and different priorities. And as a judge, you can't interact with the, with the government officials. But uh, this is when uh, sensing circles started to come about. And so I was encouraged by that. So uh, I kind of resolved that, okay, all right, I'll continue my career as a judge. And uh, so that was my, that was my intent was to uh, be a judge till I was 65, because only 45 years old, I was appointed as a judge. Oh, wow. And then at 65, you could do what's called supernumerary judge. I would be in 75, in which I would just sit as a judge for 40% um, uh, of the time, and the 60% would be my pension. So, but between the two, it would be still the full salary. That was my intent until I got that magic call on <laughs> in uh, uh, March of uh, 1990, uh, 19, uh, 1999, when my wife and I were vacationing down in uh, uh, where our son lives in uh, Arizona. <laughs> So change our life completely again. Oh, and for all the listeners who don't know about the magical call, what was the magical call about? <laughs> well, what it was, you know, like I was what I was six over 63, 64, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm trying to make sure I'm in the right age here. Uh, and because, uh, yeah, I would have been, I would just turned 63. And, uh, 2009 i was looking forward to january 2011 when i could when i reached my 65th birthday so uh we're down there vacationing went to spring training and then all of a sudden i get this call about uh, well i guess it would have been 9 30 here but 5 30 out there wake up call to great nicholas yes judge nicholas yes who is this oh i'll call you from the premier's office premier's office I said, holy cow what's going on well, we tried to reach you toward the RCMP, and then I'm thinking, oh, what happened? You know, my 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 wife's parents were not that well, and my sister wasn't that well. And I said, holy gee, what's happening? You know, so I said, well, how, what's going on? He says, well, uh, the premier wants to know. Uh, it was Premier Graham then. If uh, you would agree to be the next nominee for the position of Lieutenant Governor of New Brunswick, I said, you got to be kidding. He says, no, I'm not kidding. I said, geez, I don't know. I said, look, I've only got another year and a half to be judge. I'm looking forward so much to retiring uh, and having 60, 
60% of my time as, as a uh, okay, and then 40% of the work. I said, that's not so bad because I had, to, I had other ambitions to travel across this country on another project. But I said, geez, I don't know. I said, uh, uh, I no, I said, I can't give you a yes or no at this time. My wife and I will have to, well, take this to prayer, right? I called this certain, should I say yes or no to this thing? And I said, so I, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you. He says, when? I said, well, when do you need to know? Is it tomorrow morning? He said, tomorrow morning. I said, well, God, what time? Same time. You know, what difference in time? I said, well, well, we could not go back to bed. So I told my wife, here's what it's about. Here's what they want me to do. And and I said, I really don't want to do it because I'm looking forward to that magic age of 65. And uh, uh, so anyway, we took it to prayer. And in the prayer, you, what you do is you say, I will agree to be nominated the for and against. I will not agree to be nominated the for and against. So you explore the question first as a positive question as well as a negative question. And then you take this stuff to prayer and then find out what the creator or Lord's wish in my life at this time. So anyway, we did that. My wife and I, we had a spiritual director guiding us from New Brunswick. And we said, this is extremely confidential. And so... Um, Went to bed that night. Mine wasn't home. My wife said yes. Uh, and uh, and I told her why. And she told me why. She thought I was ready for it. I said, uh, so anyway, I next morning we got up and I called the guy back and uh, said, look, I said, I'm sorry. I said, uh, we can't make a decision. I said, we need more time. How much more time do you need? I said, well, I don't know. I said, what's your, he said you'll call me by three o'clock. Uh, New Brunswick time, which will be 11 o'clock uh, back in Arizona. I said, well, okay, we'll have you answer for you one way or the other. So then we took it to prayer. And, you know, 10.30, yes, no, <laughs> quarter. Finally, about 10 minutes to 11, my wife says, well, look, at, there's no guarantee you're going to get this thing anyway. Nobody's going to know you ever going to nominate it. Well, now everybody did how the process works. But I said, he said, it's only nomination. So what do you got to lose? I said, okay, all right then. So I called the guy. I said, okay, I guess the answer is yes. And he said, um, okay, I need your CV and all this stuff. I said, well, and the assurance was nobody would ever, ever know this was happening. I can talk publicly about it now because it leaked out. Uh, so uh, I had to get a hold of my son uh, in New Brunswick. And I said, look, at son, here's my, uh, here's, here's my uh, password for my, for my computer. There's a document there, which is my CV. Can you send that to the province? So they did. And and so uh, my sons were the only ones who knew, Beth and I, and her brother, and our spiritual brother. Those are the only ones we knew who knew this was happening. So And nobody would ever know about this stuff. So anyway, we came back after our vacation and came back. And I've been scheduled for an Indigenous event, actually in PEI, the following weekend. And um, so... Uh, Friday afternoon, my secretary comes in and says, there's a message here for you. I said, message from who? Somebody from the Canadian press in Ottawa. Canadian press. I said, judges aren't supposed to talk to the press. What's this all about anyway? He said, there's something about, something about a rumor that's going around in Ottawa that you're going to be the next lieutenant governor of New Brunswick. I said, no, they're crazy. I said, who starts, who starts, here my was worse. Who would start stupid rumors like that? I said, because I couldn't tell anybody, right? So anyway, I said, um, no, I can't talk to him. I said, uh, look, I've got court this afternoon. 
And you tell them, no, I'm not going to talk to them at all. And so, sure enough, she returned to call. And then so I called my wife. And I said, that doesn't look good. The word's out. I don't know what's happening, but i got to call my contact and find out what's happening. And sure enough, I went in contact with the, con- the one I knew. They said, well, they're leaking it out out there. We haven't done it. I said, why? He said, well, who knows why governments do things. Well, I said, well, okay, all right. but I'm not going to say anything publicly. Because, uh, first of all, I can't. And so I called my chief judge and I said, oh, by the way, this is going to come out in the news tomorrow. I don't want you to get caught off guard. And this was all supposed to be secret and confidential, but obviously it isn't. And he said, okay. I said, so they'll probably ask you as chief judge of the provincial court, what do you think? I said, that's the background. That's all I can tell you what's going on. I said, nobody has reached out to me from the prime minister's office. And I doubt if they will anyway. So, <laughs> so, I said, so anyway, so... Um, so I got ready to go. My wife had packed for me to go to Fiat every day, so I went and picked uh, my stuff at home. And then there was this guy called me, guy I know, you know, he's a photographer. He says, Great, how are you doing? I said, Not too bad. How about you? Good. He says, Look, I need a picture. picture. I said, what? He says, Well, for the story tomorrow morning. I said, What story? You know, still trying to act dumb, kind of a thing. <laughs> but anyway, he says, Look, he says, I said, Listen, I can't, I can't give you anything. Uh, I just can't. Mm-hmm. He says, well, all I need is a picture. I said, can you assure me that you can be here in five minutes? And I didn't realize he was in the neighborhood where I live. So two or three minutes later, the door comes knocking on the door and it's him. I said, oh, gee, that was fast. He, I said, um, okay, if you take this picture, I said, make sure you don't put a date on it. Because I told the media, I'm not, I, I told the um, media can't uh, find out about this. He says, okay, don't worry. He says, my job is just to get a picture of you, and that was it. So I took off the PEI, went to register at a hotel where they had room for me. So, <laughs> you know, it, when I went there in this particular hotel, they said, oh, Justice Nicholson. I said, well, Judge Nicholas, well, we've got, you're, you're from, you're from New Brunswick, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, okay, we got a room here for you. So, okay, no matter what my name was. So it was a good thing it was Nicholson. Apparently that whole weekend, the media tried to get a hold of me. They, they found out I was in PEI. They called every hotel. Is there Judge Nicholson? No, no Judge Nicholson here. And Nicholson is such a common name in PEI. So they couldn't, didn't matter. Anyway, so I didn't, anyway, so I didn't hear anything about it until Saturday morning. My wife calls me and says, oh, yeah, it's in the news, all right. I said, okay, well, uh, I won't say anything anyway over here, so. So that's how that's how it unfolded, you know. It, it was uh, it's a mystery, and uh, I thought, well, I doubt if I'll be left. Uh, I doubt if I'll be left in the corner with all this publicity. And um, on my way back from PEI that Monday night, uh, once I got off the bridge and I had to go to, uh, I went to get a newspaper, and then I stopped in at the Sudbury. Have you ever been big stop up in Sudbury? And I said, and it started to snow. I said, Holy cow. I looked at my watch. I said, gee, this is 10 30 at night. I'm not going to get home. And it's storming really bad. So I said, I better get some provisions, you know, like extra sandwiches, sweets, all this stuff. You know, I'm stuck on the road somewhere. So, and I called my wife. I said, look, I said, it's storming hard here in 
Moncton area, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get through tonight or when I'll get there. She says, well, take your time. It's, it's okay over here. So well, a friend of mine had told me once, he said, Graydon, if you want to go to a snowstorm, get behind a transport truck. So I saw a transport truck pulling out. And so I followed it. And then all of a sudden there was this car came fast and went between the transport truck and I, and it was kind of slippery. I said, oh, you better slow down for sure. I mean, so anyway, the, the truck took off and the car took off and I went at sort of like a snail's pace. And of course I couldn't see them at all. And once they were gone, the storm was so bad. And when you leave that uh, Southbury exit going toward Moncton or Fredericton, you go up and then there's a bit of a dip and a dip uh, is sort of that there's a um, transmission line. And no kidding, Pam, as I, I, was, I, was, I, I was going slow, no water traffic, all of a sudden I saw three deer, albino deer. And because usually snow would not remain on the, on the deer when it's snowing, I mean, they would take it off or whatever. But, and one had crossed, was was in the median, and there were tills still two. And I, so I stopped there, but so they all looked at me, and I let them all cross. And then after they crossed, I left. And uh, like for my particular culture, you know, albino, albino deer, animals are messengers. And about 10 kilometers after, the weather cleared right up and I got home. Yeah, you know, it's just amazing. I said, wow. I said, holy cow, what, the, what does all this mean, right? So it, from there until uh, eventually the call came in September, on Labor Day, that, that I would get disappointed. So, wow. So it's, that's how it happened. There was no... Again, uh, when you look at some of these things, there was never any magic plan on my part on any of these things. Just because I had to be the creator. Wow. I mean, what an incredible life story. And each one of those things, just individually, are individual achievements. Like, you know, getting a university degree way back when there wasn't as many Native people doing that. Or getting a law degree or becoming a teacher or going to social work or like yeah. all, of the, all yeah. of the paths yeah. that you've been on, it, yeah. they all seem like separate paths, but they all kind of seem to come together ultimately to help our people. And that's, I mean, that's an incredible life story. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, as I said, you know, uh, whenever I talked to graduates, I said, look, whatever you do, don't follow my path because I can't hold the job. <laughs> oh my goodness well it's just so inspiring and I didn't even know all of this you know I knew some of the parts but I didn't know some of the other detours and it's just so encouraging you know because some people as you know some younger people get really concerned or anxious that they don't know what their path is they don't have every year planned out until they're you know 80 and it's and it's like sometimes you just let have to let the path unravel before you you know just walk by a law school and see if they will take you in <laughs> yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. that's right yeah I, it's been an amazing uh amazing uh uh path of life i guess path journey is what i would call it and uh no no it's, it's i mean i have no regrets uh i've you know, i've read uh, i've lived really a full 
a very full uh, uh, life uh, with a lot of challenges, a lot of um, opportunities. So that's cool. And now St. Thomas is is so happy because you're back at St. Thomas as the chancellor. And I think that's just so wonderful that you're, you're back there where you helped inspire me to go to law school and do the things I did. And yeah. yeah in fact, when, uh, there was a student came to me, I think three years ago, cause I was, I've been back at St. Thomas full time since 2015. Uh, I, again, those are different circumstances, but anyway, so her mother had said, you've got to, because she was a student from UNB, right? And we've got neighboring campuses. So she, she told her daughter, you've got to take a course from Graydon Nichols. He taught me, and he also taught my father. So you're the third generation. So, and now this young woman, she, she's going to uh, University of Ottawa Law School. See, that's great. You're like a grandfather to so many of us out there, you know, like the way Native people just traditionally adopt people. You're just going around encouraging all these people to go out and do the same things you did in different ways. And that's inspiring. And I just, I really want to thank you for everything you've done throughout your life for our people, um, how you encouraged me uh, along the way, uh, all the positive things you've ever said. And of course, for coming on here and doing this extended interview, hope you weren't <laughs> watching the time. <laughs> no, really to, no, I wasn't. To share it because, you know, one of the things that our listeners like the most is not just the formal stuff, but it's all the stories in between. How did you get there and what happened? And, and it's not, it's not the perfectly laid out path that everyone thinks it is. It really is just, it unravels in front of you. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, as I say, you know, the creators uh, watched over me and I'm very grateful of that. If I can return any of these gifts to our people, that's great. Well, Lee Wan Graydon, uh, thank you again. I, I appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom and experiences and funny stories with all of us. <laughs> and, and I'll be sure to post links on the um, show notes where you can um, see Graydon's page at St. Thomas and links to the treaty panel that we did a couple weeks back where oh, we had a great conversation about yeah. the treaties. <sighs> And thanks to our listeners for taking up the responsibility to learn more so that you can help take concrete actions to help bring about social justice and earth justice in partnership with sovereign Indigenous peoples. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag. Walaliag. Thank you.